Hi guys, welcome to episode 9. I can't believe we've reached there. And thank you so much for giving up your time to listen to this next episode. This month I have a special guest called Lynette Nabosa, who is an award-winning founder, responsible business academic and commissioner for the Mayor of London. She founded Elimu to reduce the amount of young people who are not in education, employment or training, in short NWET. Elimu's community achieves this by connecting black youth with professionals who enhance their education, careers and financial literacy. Through her doctorate, Lynette is evaluating the outcomes of Elimu's launchpad and fellowship programs to, firstly, develop a nuanced design thinking framework for entrepreneurship education, and secondly, lobby for policies to improve the sustainability and scalability of micro-enterprises. She spoke very candidly about her journey through her career and how she has found her calling and passion through the Elimu Launchpad. Her education journey, which was really fascinating as well, included social business and microfinance, as well as currently studying for her doctorates in business administration. I also want to thank her for being extremely brave to share her battle with depression on this interview during her time in university as well. I have included her socials in the description of this podcast, so please get in touch with her if you find that this may be of something uh, of interest to you or you know someone that might be interested to take on advice or connect with older professionals on how they can go about their career path. Uh, and maybe you even know a company who might also benefit from the mentoring scheme. So I really hope you enjoy it and thank you again for your time. And yeah, see you soon, hopefully for episode 10. Welcome, guys. We are episode nine, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, another great guest who I've come in contact with since uh, my travels in my career. Um, Today, I'm speaking with Lynette, uh, and we crossed paths while I was at my previous employer at PwC. the way we caught up mainly was through uh, some of the actions and interactions that um, PwC had um, in terms of a charitable way uh, to start to have conversations around social mobility uh, and employability around different um, areas of, for example, London or even the UK. So I just wanted to welcome Lynette. How are you? How's things? How's um, the usual lockdown life, as I, as I would put it? Lockdown life is, I'm over it. <laughs> I am truly over it. I think I need a holiday. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting there slowly. It's getting there slowly. So I'm really happy to have you as a, as a guest on the show um, and explore your career and just pass some wisdom on to people uh, as much as possible. So, uh, yeah, just another big welcome. Um, but let's, let's start at the beginning. Maybe we can explore where you're from and your background and where you grew up. Uh, and then we can touch on University of Birmingham and what you studied. So I don't know, wherever you feel comfortable to kick off, um, I'm all ears and the listeners are too. <laughs> all right, I'll take you all the way back. <laughs> yeah, please so, do. <laughs> I grew up in Lewisham Borough in a ward called Catford on an estate called Milford Towers, which I truly believe was the catalyst for my career and how my life turned out. 
So Lewisham, at the time that I was growing up, it was literally at the top of all the disadvantages. So when it came to poverty, when it came to crime, when it came to teen pregnancy, we were wow. always at the top of the list. And that's the sort of environment I grew up in. These are things that were not just in the stats. They were kind of the realities for my neighbours, my friends, and a lot of the people around me. So the estate that I grew up in, Milford Towers, it was always, to me, a kind of village within a village. So we had all these really ambitious parents. A lot of them were migrants. A lot of them were either single parents or they were on low income. And they were always aspiring for more for their children and for their families. So while we were there, while I was on the estate, there were always kind of kids in my house because when my parents were home, they'd be kind of taking in the neighbours' kids and the same with us when my parents were at work, they'd be taking each other in. So it was like a real community. When you were out there grinding, you knew you had that support system that would take take care of your kids. And a lot of the initiatives that they were developing, they were also for us. So whether it was events, whether it was childminding or after-school clubs, they were doing a lot of things to try and, first of all, improve our environment, but then also make sure that they were setting their children up for better futures. However, no one ever saw that in public because, you know, media has a lot of um, influence on the way things are seen. So we were always, even if you Google Milford Towers now, we were always kind of known for the crime and known for like killings even. I remember when I was in year eight, a girl my age, she was chopped up, murdered then chopped up. And that was like the big news for ages. And then two years after that, um, a friend of my brother's, like they were called Olders. So like my brother's older was um, shot in his doorstep, yeah. like literally just like across the bridge from us. So these things were how we were being portrayed, like these killings and then seeing needles like lying around. That was the norm for us. And seeing guns was the norm because whether it was the people who are my neighbours who had the guns or whether it's police who are coming with their guns because they had to raid people's homes, like these are all normal things. For me, but I didn't realise that they weren't the norm for everybody else because if that's what you're growing up in as a child, you don't realise what's normal and abnormal. So while I thought it was an incredible environment to grow up in, it was only after kind of seeing how people portrayed my environment that I kind of started to question, is this safe? Is this somewhere where I want to live? Is this somewhere that is conducive to me kind of leading a successful life? And as I got older, I've got younger siblings. I've got a younger brother who's four years younger than me, a younger sister that's four years younger than him. So then when you kind of start thinking about it in terms of the future generations, you're thinking, is this the sort of environment that you want to grow up in because the influence there and then the sort of trouble they can get into. So my kind of mindset shift happened there because I knew that although the environment to me was incredible, it's not necessarily the safest place or the best place to grow up in. So growing up, like when I went into university, when I started my work, I always thought about that estate because I felt like if they were provided with more opportunities, like those parents who were aspiring, if they were given opportunities to make their business initiatives more sustainable and even scalable, then maybe things in the environment would have changed. And if young people had seen more role models and not just the ones who were making money through crime and be selling drugs and maybe would have thought okay let me take this other route because although most of my neighbors are doing this there's this one neighbor who's a lawyer or who's I don't know an artist and 
they're having an incredible career. So I'm going to. It opens that. a different perspective, right? Exactly. But then when you're not exposed to that, you have you're not making informed choices. You think these are my only options. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm either going to be in a nine to five and struggle like my parents and all these parents who are working around the clock for pennies, or I'm going to take the other route and I'm going to be like the olders who are doing high risk activities, <laughs> but they've got the nice cars and they've got the big money and they've got the power and the respect. So that was always something that I wanted to do. I wanted to show people that they had more options so that they can make more informed decisions. Can I can I ask, have you have you been back to Lewisham since like I guess the family still lives there and stuff. So how's how's that kind of changed in terms of it's become a desirable place where people want to move all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, where everyone wants to buy a house there. Yeah. Um so it's quite it'll be quite interesting to hear what's the perspective change and what's the environment change like. So what's interesting to me is I still live in Lewisham Baba, but literally five okay, I'll tell you a, a five minute drive, but like thirty minutes walk from where I used to live, but it's a completely different world. It's a place called Forest Hill and it's just incredible. It's got all these kind of indie shops. Well now we've got the kind of chain stores that have come in, but like it's typically been places where you have these indie shops, these kind of middle class people. We've got a kind of farm, a mini farm up the road. So you have that kind of escapism. You have the gardens, we have a museum, we have all these kind of amenities that are a whole different world to literally the five minute drive down the roads where all these kind of terrible mm-hmm. things are happening. And to be fair, I live on a very long road. So if you go further down my road, you still you still see a bit of that contrast. So like side of the road that I live on is kind of like the haves and then you go further down and it's kind of like the have not. So it's like you've got hostels and you've got um, a lot of care leavers are put into homes over there and they kind of need a lot more support to be able to kind of develop the outcomes and the kind of lifestyle that will be a bit more sustainable. But yeah, it's just been incredible to see how there can be such contrast within Ababa, not even Ababa, like even like just within this kind of 10 minute radius. So that's another thing that's always stuck out to me. And then just thinking about what Lewisham is like now, I kind of passed through Lewisham in terms of like Lewisham Centre and Catford, but like I'm never there properly. So from what I've seen, I just feel like it's a lot less busy, a lot less chaotic, I would say. So that's the main thing that stands out to me because before when I was younger, I would time the kind of times I would go to the shop or I would make sure if I'm going to school that I go super early and catch the first bus so I can avoid all the drama, all the fights, all the politics. Whereas now, obviously, I'm not in that world anymore. So I don't know if that's still happening for like the younger people. But yeah, it's a lot less chaotic. And I guess those are the kind of pros and cons because the good thing you could say is that um, it's a lot safer now. But then it's like, is it safer because they've provided better solutions for people and improved the environment that they live up, live in? Or is it safer because they've marginalised them somewhere where you can't see what's still happening and they've kind of clumped everyone who's kind of from a disadvantaged background together so the rest of Catford will look good and the rest of Vision will look good while they're still dealing with the same challenges. So that's something that I'm not too sure about. Yeah. I'm, I'm very keen to hear that kind of uh, perspective develop out as we have a conversation further on. But going back to uni and stuff, was there an active choice, I guess, uh, you studied in Birmingham, was there an active choice to move out of London? Yeah. Um, and 
was that what what, what did you study exactly what why did you study what you did um it'd be pretty cool to understand that to even even look at how the change of culture even as much as people think there isn't but between birmingham and london it's massive um coming from you know a massive city like london and the diversity and the different people that you meet um it'll be pretty intriguing to understand why you chose to go there so first of all when I was when I was leaving school, I, go, I went to school in Lewisham um, in a place called Lee Green. So I was like, I'm going to break out of this area. I want to like just be in a whole different environment. So I went to college in Croydon because I felt like that was so far. <laughs> and it was still within South London. I didn't like at the time I felt like I was taking this big leap, but it was literally just still South London, just a bit further out. So I went to Croydon College and then when I realised that things weren't that much different, I thought, okay, let me go even further. But being a black woman, well, I wasn't a woman at the time, but being black, I had to think about the environment that I'd be walking into. So when I was looking at universities, unfortunately, I knew that I wanted to leave the city, but I had to think, first of all, where am I most likely to experience racism? Where might I experience exclusion? So Birmingham being the second most diverse city, that was literally the only selling factor for me. It wasn't only, it was only when I, I went to the uni because when I got in, I got into Birmingham, Surrey and Brunel and a couple of my friends were going to Brunel. So they were kind of really kind of like, Lynette, don't ruin the friend, like don't ruin the circle, like you have to go to Brunel. So for a, lot, a long time, I was going to, I was certain I was going to go to Brunel. Then one time my grandma called me, this is all down to her, all of this is down to her because she called me and she was like, your grandfather went to Birmingham so you're going to go to Birmingham and that was it I was like okay I can't defy her so I've got to go and I'm so glad that that call happened because my mum was trying to kind of convince me but I was like she she didn't really have that power but when my grandma did it she was like yeah I'm not having a conversation with sometimes you. sometimes <laughs> you feel um decisions are kind of made for you even before <laughs> you think about it you're right um so I think that's pretty cool of how that's worked out and in a way, you've probably already realized it's worked out for the best um, and it's 100%. it's really cool. Um, and then you decide to study uh, town planning and social policy. What What is that uh, like and the decision behind that? W- was there an interest from school to understand dynamics and how people, uh, you know, move around nope. uh, and ties <laughs> into social policy? So I guess maybe just in, in a synopsis, uh, how did that kind of seed out? <laughs> you'll notice that with my whole life everything has been a series of me just kind of essentially tripping and falling into situations and nothing has been intentional um I would like to say that I've made smart decisions but I haven't that it's just panned out that way so with going to University of Rome I actually applied to study African studies African development studies and then I got there and the curriculum was all based on West Africa and not even like the whole of West Africa. It was like um, Nigeria and Ghana and Ivory Coast. And I felt like I came here to study about Africa as like the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So if I'm going to be studying about one section of Africa for the next three years, that's not really what I came for. And then unfortunately at that stage, you start thinking about money. So what's going to put me on the path to a successful career and a wealthy career path? And I started thinking, okay, first of all, it's not what I expected it to be. Second of all, the cohort, there was literally one black teacher. Um, and that's not 
enough of a reason not to study it but I also felt like in studying it I really wanted the kind of lived experience to be taught as well as the study so if you've only kind of studied something but you haven't had the lived experience I feel like that takes out the richness in the subject and then the third thing was the career path I felt like okay maybe I can be a teacher but what else can I do because before I was going for the interest and then when it didn't seem like it was going to meet my interest I started thinking why am I really doing this course and I remember to this day when I was listing the reason because when you're switching over they ask you why you are switching over and I said the career thing and I remember the teacher looked at me the well the lecturer looked at me and she was like you can have an incredible career path with this like she seemed like really offended and going back now I would have definitely definitely studied it because I think a lot of the things that I've gone on to study in my personal time in terms of my personal interests are related to African studies and just African development so I think I should have really stayed the course but obviously it's worked out for good but I just sometimes think would it have worked out differently maybe I would be in international development I mean you you still have you still have the opportunity to go back and do it you know so that's 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 always a bonus I I think I think we we always think like that and I can I can also you know from coming from my background I mean I'm not going to lie I completely flopped my a-levels like completely uh and coming from international the only direction was from coming from kenya to the uk because i was born here and even then it's just at the back of your mind it's like what is going to make me money or how can i get somewhere and make a life of myself like i would love to study music tech for example like you know it's just it's a passion of mine and i always say yeah i'll do music but it's not gonna i don't know maybe that comes down to social representation within those industries uh no recognition for people coming from different backgrounds for example um that probably weighs down on okay i've not seen someone do this before so i'm just gonna default to uh i mean most asian households will be like oh yeah finance medicine or whatever you know um again it's parents are the only people at the time that know um safe it's a safety net essentially for them um but yeah, I I don't think you can you can look back in 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 that way. It's it, it is what it is, and I'm sure it's going to work out the way it's supposed to, as you saw with your university choice. Yeah. Um, I was going to say I, I um yeah. I thought it was really important what you said about us not taking certain risks, so to speak, because we've never seen anyone do it before. I think exactly. that's definitely what a lot of people experience when they're choosing their uni subjects because. Obviously, through Elimu, I work with a lot of young people who are either undergraduates or they're going into uni, or even those who are graduating. And even when they're at the point of graduating, they're still not sure that they made the right choice. So a lot of the times, again, they go with the safe options or the options that their parents gave them rather than their passions. And that's the same thing that my sister was subject to. She was really good in her A-levels at maths and physics and French and that sort of stuff. And her passion and her her real talent was... um, English literature but again you think okay okay with literature I'm just going to be a teacher you don't realize how many career paths yeah. can come from that so she didn't take that path and I think she did end up regretting it so I think that's why with Elimu like literally the motto we'll go into Elimu but the, the the motto with that is you can't be what you can't see because if you're not seeing yourself represented in different fields you, you don't even think to think about these things and yeah, I, I, it's it's crazy because even thinking about my friend who studied biomedical science mm-hmm. um, in the uni I went to, and he's he's grown up here all his life, and but his parents are from Jamaica. Yeah. 
there was a point where I was in the ad industry, which I've come back into now. Um, he he was looking for another role to move into because he was a, just a science journalist and doing like bits and bobs here and like publisher stuff. And I was like, you realize there's like a medical agent, like marketing agencies that focus on, because I've learned that myself because I was yeah. in the industry. I was like, dude, do you realize that there's like a medical agency or like they specialize in pharmaceuticals? uh and advertising medicine and like healthcare uh and he's like i didn't even know that i was like dude go for the interviews and he's been there for like three four years now Amazing. um forging a career but that's again it goes down to the point of if if you don't see anyone or know anyone in that space you're not going to know there's a career path so yeah i think it's quite interesting to see how that kind of works out um and yeah just back to your the town pla- uh, planning and social policy wh- yeah, what was the what was the switch over? Like, how, how come you went for that then? So then I thought, okay, I did English law and sociology um, at A-level. And I remember <laughs> with sociology, that was the subject that I enjoyed most at A-levels. But my auntie had said to me, you're not going to do any ology degrees. If they have an ology in it, you're not doing it. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, okay, do you know what? The closest thing to sociology is social policy. So... I did it for the social policy part, but because I didn't know what career I wanted to go into, I wanted to do a joint honours. The same thing with my master's. I did social business and microfinance because I wasn't sure. So I wanted to make sure that I had the two um, degrees behind me or the two subjects behind me so that I could kind of widen my pool of career paths. So I did. I went into it for the social policy, but I fell in love with the town planning. So I ended up like my internships were all like kind of, a planning department in Birmingham City Council, then a private planning consultancy here in London. And afterwards, when you're going through that whole grad scheme, trying to find one, I didn't manage to get one. But it's funny because now I'm working on the Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm for the Mayor of London. And now I'm finally going to get to use my planning degree because a lot of it is about the public spaces and the development. So that's what I was saying earlier, that even though I kind of regretted, I wouldn't say regret, but I kind of wonder sometimes what would have happened if I had done that African Development Studies degree. I do feel like everything happens for a reason because that was something that I highlighted in the application process, the kind of experience I had in town planning and what interested me about that aspect of the built environment and the public spaces that we're in. So everything happens for a reason. You, can you... That's that's what I'm saying. Like you could you can't say that. I would like. Can you expand on like the 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 mayor of London thing? Like what exactly is? What do you what do you do? Or what was the thinking behind it? And what's the responsibilities like? So a couple of years ago, 2018, um, the mayor commissioned a statue of um, a lady called Millicent Fawcett. And so in London, we don't have enough representation of diverse populations. So this also applies to women. So in having that statue, this kind of ignited conversations in city halls about having more representative statues, but it's become more about much more than statues. It's about diversity in public spaces. But when the Black Lives Matter uprising happened last year, last summer, it kind of accelerated those conversations that they had been having since 2018. And they thought which I thought was really kind of commendable because there has been so much dialogue and so much discussion but the fact that they actually said no we're going to act we're actually going to execute 
actual actions because I think I haven't yeah. I've, I've been part of so many conversations but I haven't seen a lot of actions so the fact that they even said you know we're going to make this happen and we know it all rattle feathers but we're going to make something we're going to make a tangible change um that was incredible to me so I actually saw it on LinkedIn so I cover I follow the mayor of London I've been to a couple of his people people's question time event and I really 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 like him <laughs> like I think he's really respectable I think he's really doing the work to make change. And what I didn't know is that the Mayor of London Post has only been existent since 2000, the year 2000. So I think for such a new role, he's been able to really shape it and really do the work to make sure that he leaves London, when he eventually leaves that role, that he leaves London in a much better and a much more equal position. I feel like it probably sounds like I'm just kind of... (laughs) It's really interesting to see. Because I work with him, but no, it's genuinely, those are part of the reasons that I kind of have been following him over the years. So when he posted that they were going to be creating this commission, I thought, I definitely want to apply for this. And I went through the pack just to really understand what it was about. And it was speaking about making sure that London's public spaces are representative of London. Because at the moment, London is one of the most diverse cities in the world. And it doesn't make sense for so many of our groups whether it's ethnic groups whether it's to do with abilities or disabilities or your sexuality or your gender there's no reason why so many of these groups should be invisible within such a diverse city so it's really just about making sure that it looks like the people who are inhabitant of this city so street names buildings public spaces artwork we're going to be developing or having a lot of discussions and dialogues first. So it's not just 15 of us making these decisions. We're going to have a lot of like, conferences, symposiums, a lot of options or opportunities for Londoners to get involved in the discussions. And then we'll kind of develop policies for best practice. So even when this commission doesn't exist anymore, that there are policies and procedures in place that ensure that London's built environment is constantly being developed in a way that's representative of all Londoners but I think a lot of people think it's about statues (laughs) whether it's about whether it's because the Millicent Fawcett statue or because of the Black Lives Matter movement and then obviously um what happened in Bristol like them toppling um certain statues like a lot of Londoners have decided that it's just about statues and we're trying to erase the history of London so ever since the announcement a couple of weeks ago it's been <laughs> it's been interesting. So we've been trolled a lot. We've had newspapers. We've had some politicians who've been like insulting us and just kind of just making it seem like we're attacking London and making London more divisive when really it's the opposite. We're trying to make it more inclusive. We're trying to make sure everybody is seen in this space of ours. It sounds really well. I was just going to say with the, with the whole insult stuff, my my analogy, which I always go down to, is just like you got to let the dogs bark outside the house. Yeah, like you know what I mean. You know what you're doing, and yeah. you have to take confidence in that. The yeah. dogs are going to continue barking outside, so just yeah. let them be. Yeah, um, so I've been able to kind of just block the people who have been trying to like at me, and then other than that, I don't really see. I think you can. The good thing about social media and the internet, and like even like news articles, you can kind of control what you see. So that's worked for me. But I know one of my colleagues, he was like directly targeted. People have kind of called him evasive, said he's anti-Semitic, like accused him of anti-Semitism. And um, you had Sean Bailey saying that he should be sacked. So unfortunately, yesterday he did step down from the commission. Um, And I think that this is testament to 
first of all, how impactful people's words can be. Like you're sending death threats to somebody who has a family and then he's got to kind of consider the safety of his family. But then you're also making people who are from different or diverse backgrounds feel like they shouldn't try to be included in their home or that they shouldn't try to be represented or have a voice. So luckily we've got the support of each other and the support of a lot of Londoners as well. So I'm sure there's going to be incredible work. But it's just unfortunate to see that a lot of Londoners are still very, what's the word, that there's still a lot of gaslighting going on. There's still a lot of people who want to see their neighbours and their fellow Londoners represented. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Uh, and I think even recently I, I've been seeing, I mean, separately, it's just the whole uh, racial abuse and stuff that's coming on just social media channels. Um, I've just started to take a bit more interest in it because um i think it's crazy how it's just allowed um and like just accepted that it happens and it continues to happen to uh, like i follow football religiously and it's just like it's always the black people black players that get completely like racial i'm not saying it doesn't happen elsewhere but those are the ones that spark out and they speak about it uh, i mean the other day there was uh there's an irish footballer who plays for stoke who got um threatened on the pitch and stuff and it's just like it, it goes on everywhere and i think it comes down to the point how social media companies have to take responsibility now um because a good i mean not a great example but like clubhouse the new app that's been going crazy um i think they are allowing only people who register with their government names to create accounts uh, and that should be the that should have been the number one way because you can create yeah. a twitter account in 10 seconds yeah and just send abuse yeah um, yeah i've noticed that a lot of the people who crazy. were asking me they were actually burner accounts i was like yeah yeah they just, <laughs> they just create bots and it, yeah. it's pretty crazy how it's allowed to happen and i think uh the platforms need to take a bit more responsibility for that and start changing the way uh interactions are happening but you know all more power to you and obviously um just keep doing what you're doing and it's quite inspiring to see that moving uh and hopefully you know, it doesn't get to a point where, you know, people are threatening you that much. But uh, I guess it's t it's a tough environment. However, I don't think we can understand that from a listener's perspective. Uh, but I hope like your uh, upbringing as well as that kind of taught you that environment. You, you kind of expected it to happen. Uh, and I think the fact that even growing up in Lewisham, that's it's kind of good that you're shaping the way the London community is working because you've come from a side that's seen, as I pointed out earlier, going from nothing and the, you know, the whole perspective of Lewisham has completely changed. So yeah. it's, it's doing well. Um, but yeah, maybe we, we move on to your, your uh, master's and the doctorate um, in Glasgow Caledonia University. What's the, was that a thinking behind the way the career thing that you mentioned about not getting the graduate scheme or did you already have that plan uh, and maybe talk to us I guess more about the doctorate in business administration it'd be pretty cool to see what you're working on and investigating so to see in inverted commas. Well this is going to be quite long-winded because I think all of these parts are important in this part of my story. Sure. So when I was studying at University of Birmingham it was quite a difficult experience so the my health was just terrible so I ended up having to have an emergency surgery in my third year and then 
just displaying the symptoms of what now that we understand more about mental health like just displaying the symptoms of what I can now identify as um, symptoms of depression and just being overburdened so I was working two jobs and then studying full-time which was immense (laughs) and on top of that just being in those different environments and just not really feeling that I could be myself in any of those environments so on my course I was the only black person and because of that it was it was difficult for me to speak up when I needed support because I didn't want to feel I didn't want to seem like I was less intelligent or I didn't deserve to be there so I don't know whether to call it pride or imposter syndrome but I didn't seek the support that I'm sure would have been available if I'd asked for it so I suffered for a long time until like literally the 11th hour when I was like lectures I need help and there were a billion when I asked for it but it was kind of too late because by then my health had taken a toll and then just thinking about the little experiences I had like I remember working in William Hill those were like 11 hour shifts it was never anything less than 11 hours and then experiences I had there I remember one time we had um an armed robbery so me and my um colleague like we had like we were stuck up in in um and you don't realize how those things impact you so because I didn't really process it because I've had friends who've been shot and stabbed so I never really saw it as a wild thing. And I obviously spoke about my estate where people were even killed on my estate. So going through it, I didn't feel like it was something for me to react to. But then you don't realise that these are traumatic events and then your body will react to it. Even if you are if if you try to block it out or try to normalise it, your body will eventually react to it. So the build-up of all these things, my health, ending up going to the hospital almost every other week, like in agonising pain, finding out that I had ovarian cysts and then yeah working like I spoke about the 11 hour shifts I also worked through the night my university job was working through the night like doing um work in the clubs the student guild club so it was a lot like I was I was overburdening myself and then I ended up imploding and because of all of this I didn't perform as well as I could have and for me I've always been a high achiever so in school we were called gifted and talented and then like just being used to being like an A-grade student and then coming from that kind of path to then graduating with the tutor and feeling like it was the end of the world. And it was so annoying because I was like three points away <laughs> from a 2-1. But yeah, those sorts of things no. hit me hard because you identify yourself, which I think is really bad and something that I try to help our young people to unlearn. It's like you identify yourself with achievements, which at the end of the day mean nothing. Like, but nobody's ever asked me what, what, maybe if I had gone for a city job, they would have, but nobody's ever asked me what grade I got at university. They just said, oh, you went to University of Birmingham, that's a good uni, and that's it. Yeah. So um, things that I thought were going to change the course of my life because I hadn't <laughs> achieved. And for a long time, I was really sad about that and went into a career in financial inclusion because I felt like I, there was no point of even applying for a kind of city job because, of course, I think it's changed a bit now, but it was like two, one and above at the time. But then my, again, everything happens for a reason because my career in financial inclusion was incredible. I ended up working on this um, project across the London Housing Financial Inclusion Group with the government. They have a behavioural insights team. So I did like this really innovative behavioural economics project, which allowed me to work with social housing tenants who are 18 to 35 because they're at the highest risk of failing their tenancies and being evicted within a year. So I was doing a lot of like incredible work in terms of developing their financial capabilities and their relationship with money 
and doing that through the psychological technique called behavioural economics. So when I learned about financial inclusion, I realised that how important money is in terms of it being a symptom of all these other issues. So, for example, a housing association would see that their tenants are not paying rent, but then what they don't see is that the tenant is a victim of domestic violence or the tenant has mental health issues or the tenant is a care leaver, so no one's ever taught them how to manage their bills or furnish their home. And these are things that I was unveiling. Like I was so shocked at the amount of 18 to 21-year-olds who have already been victims of domestic violence. Like I don't know why in my head it was always like an older people's issue, but it's even in the younger communities, it's a big thing. So, and even care leavers and just learning more about the 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 lives that they lead in terms of never having like a stable support system, but then you're told at 18 years old that you're an adult now, here's this unfurnished property, you've got to figure out how to heat it, put light in it, get carpet or flooring and all this furniture and fridges and washing machines, like these are stripped bare properties that they put them in. And then they tell them, okay, you've got this weekly or monthly income figure out how to stretch that across your bills and get all this furniture. And you're doing that all by yourself. So that job really kind of made me more passionate about money and how money can not only affect people's livelihoods in terms of what they can do, but money can also be a symptom of what their livelihoods and lifestyles are already like. So that's why I decided to do my master's because I felt like what we were doing on that project was good, but I felt like it wasn't quite enough. So I wanted to learn how to kind of make sure that we are making sure that people's financial circumstances are a lot more that we're, that we're doing, doing a lot more to improve their financial capabilities so I went and did social business and microfinance again I went you know how I said for my undergrad I was going in for social policy but I fell in love with town planning so for that I was going in for the microfinance mm-hmm. side but I fell in love with the social business side which is why Illumu exists today so wow <laughs> they taught me about social entrepreneurship and through that I learned about different models of um, social enterprise and I was doing a lot of reports sustainable development goals had come out so I was doing reports about that ended up winning a report and um, or winning this national writing competition about corporate social responsibility I was looking at um, Shell and their oil spills in Niger Delta, Delta region I was looking at how this affects stakeholders or how companies need to be responsible to all of their stakeholders so having that report win that conference again allowed or set in motion a series of events that have affected my career path so because I won that I was invited by the UN's body to go to this conference they were like oh this girl she's won da, 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 clap financial award and all of that but <laughs> For me, it was what I was representing that I didn't realise or appreciate at the time. So in that whole conference, there were three ethnic minorities, so a Bengali man and two black women, including myself. And the Bengali man, he came up to me at the end or in the lunch break, and he was like, do you realise how incredible it is that you're one of the three ethnic minorities here and you're here for for an award for something that you've done at your own research? I was like, "Mm, cool whatever <laughs> but he was like no I'm going to make sure that people know about this I want to shout about this from the rooftops I'm a I'm a lecturer at this university I want you to come I want to introduce you to my colleagues I'm going to introduce you to the Association of Commonwealth Universities I was like okay cool I didn't expect him to actually wow. follow up but he did and he invited me to his 
university, they were having a meeting, the Association of Commonwealth Universities, the dean there was having a meeting with this university about disadvantaged students and how they can support them. So I was like, wow, I'm in this room full of academics, like I'm going to learn so much. And then the solution that they came up with was a hackathon. And I remember feeling this fire in my belly because I was so angry. I was like, you guys have spoken about, you, you've sat at this table, you've spoken about these stats that affect disadvantaged students. And the solution that you've come up with is a hackathon. So I spoke and I was like, and this was the That's only thing I said all meeting. I was like, you have students like myself, so the experience that I just told you about, I spoke about that. So things like imposter syndrome and the kind of having to work two jobs just to be able to survive in university and then the kind of fi- like financial and also family circumstances that can affect your p- performance. None of that is going to be solved by a hackathon. And I told them that they have ACS in universities, that's African-Caribbean societies. And I was like, you have a select audience, like you can tap into that audience right there. It's already there. They probably meet monthly or every other month. Go and speak to those societies, have a focus group, ask them how you can help them instead of having this meeting where none of those students are represented because you're coming up with a hackathon, but I'm sure they can come up with much better solutions. And then at the end of it, the person, the dean, no, the um, deputy um, dean, he asked me to, first of all, deliver a guest lecture on the um, report that I'd written that had won that award. But then he also asked me to help them set up an ACS. That fell into me having a sessional contract with them. And then it fell into me becoming a permanent lecturer and then a senior lecturer. So while I was lecturing, I wanted to kind of make sure I've always got this thing about completing things it's like this obsession so I feel like I want to finish everything if I start I want to finish it so it's the same with education I'm like okay because I'm a senior lecturer now I could just be like yo from I've done what I need to do I can just wait for years and develop my um, professional development and eventually become a professor but I feel like no I want to complete my education and that's literally the only reason I went for the doctorate (laughs) is that menial I just feel like if I start education honestly all the way through so at the time that I was lecturing I was taking some of the stuff that we were teaching on the business management curriculum and I was using it to develop a learning model because I was like this isn't difficult stuff you can teach this to young people and if you teach them these things from an earlier age because if you don't do a business studies course you're not necessarily going to learn about things like negotiation or personal branding or marketing or cash flows or projections or strategizing and these are all things that will help you no matter what career field you go in so I thought let me take some of this stuff out of this curriculum content and build this learning model so that I can teach black youth these things and just whether they decide to go into arts or sciences or into business they have these skills that will enable them to become leaders and then that's where Elimu was born so I developed the model and I had been lucky to be able to go to Senegal twice um, once with a consultancy firm called Africa Consulting and Trading they've got this thing called the Dakar Business Hub where they do this youth entrepreneurship scheme like for one week every year and then the second time was with a community empowerment program from an organization called Tostan so they kind of looked at my model I was there for two weeks and then they looked at the model and helped me to develop it so I came back to the UK and I was like I want this model to work for black youth but I want it to work for all youth so in order in order for me to kind of get the credibility behind it, let me study it at a doctoral level 
and see what the impacts are of this learning model and if they do affect outcomes in terms of young people going into education, employment or training. And if they do, then it'll be easier to kind of lobby for educational reforms and share this model with different institutions. So that's what I'm focusing on with my doctorate. Amazing. That's a that's a really comprehensive uh, background. It's really really interesting. And it's it's cool. It's it's very un like it, to me. It blows my mind how you can see the thread of the career trajectory from the start. Uh, and there's so many things that are plugging in, and you're just like, oh, this is built here. This is built here. It's fascinating to me. Can I can I ask about um, obviously Elimu? Um, what was the I'll probably say the objective when you started it, like you did mention it there, but did you see it as uh, a charity or was it just a specific body that you were trying to create to help people get into work? It'd be interesting to understand how that vision has changed over the last three and a half years or so since you started it. Yeah, so when I was doing my master's in social business and microfinance, they were teaching us all these models of social entrepreneurship. So for example, you could be like Tom's, they sell a pair of trainers or, or Tom's, the actual Tom's, the canvas shoes. Yeah. And with every pair, a pair goes to a child in a developing country. Or you could have a different model where you're running as a normal profit making business, but you're hiring ex-prisoners or you're hiring people with disabilities. And that in itself is social entrepreneurship. Or you could be running something that's more charitable. So you're not necessarily trading but you're getting income through a lot of grants and you might enter into contracts as well or you might hold events and then make money from ticket sales so that's the model I went with with LMU so I thought I definitely want to stay in education I want to continue educating youth and black youth in particular but what I don't think is necessary is university like university worked out for me but I don't think I think people are not a monolith and I think it's important that we don't teach young people that if you don't take one one trajectory in your life, then you're less than or then you're a failure. Because when I was doing my A-levels, I'm not going to lie, I thought that I was better than the BTEC students. Why? They, they had their shit together because they knew <laughs> I, I'm going to go and learn how to be a nail technician because I know that this is my talent, this is my passion, and I'll be able to develop the skills to be able to do that. Or I'm going to go into engineering or become a builder so I don't know why me who had no idea what I wanted to do and up till doing my master's I still had no idea I thought I was better than them because that's what the system was for us if you don't go from 10 GCSEs that are A star to C to then going on to do your A levels to then going to Russell Group University then going into your grad scheme probably in a city job then you're not as successful as your peers who have gone on that path so with an I want to show them that you can be successful Success is what you make it. So I don't know if you've seen this meme that's not really a meme, but like this image that's been going around on social media where it's saying that social media or success is no longer considered how much money you can make or what your job title is, but it's a job that allows it's you to a pie chart, like I've seen yeah. it And I think that that's yeah. so important to teach young people from a younger age because that's why we end up feeling like failures if we graduate with a tutu or feeling like failures if we're not on the, or we don't think that we're in a money making degree. So I wanted to teach young people to look at their talents, their inherent talents, and also their passion, and try and develop a career that aligns with that rather than a career that they feel will either make them the most money or make their parents happy. And I also wanted to make sure that they had the entrepreneurial skills to be able to lead within whichever field that they go into. So there's a combination of the two. My lived experiences, 
making me want to teach young people that, but then me also wanting to develop a business model that would allow me to not only be sustainable within the move, but to be able to scale it. Because I don't just want to do this work in the UK. I think I told you when we first met that the aim is to be able to do this work in Uganda, in Kenya, on the continent. And I think over there, we're going to have to contextualise it because although we still have so many young people over there that in Uganda, more than 75, more than 80% of the country is under the age of 35. And with so many young people, there's not, it's not realistic to expect that all of them are going to go into a nine to five. Because first of all, you have the issues of tribalism and nepotism. And second of all, there's not enough jobs. So with them, it's going to be really important to teach them entrepreneurial skills so they know not only how to develop skills or businesses, but then also how to sustain them and scale them so that they can hire other young people. So the kind of long-term vision is for LME to be international and be on the continent, providing the relevant skills to young people for the context that they're in, where, again, in on the continent, it's most likely entrepreneurship, whereas here, there's a bit more options in terms of education, entrepreneurship and um, employment. But to be able to do that, you need to be able to have as many income streams as possible. So that's where um, the kind of path is I went in so that we can do events and then sell tickets. And then we can also enter into contracts, whether that's training or consulting, and then just the usual income from grants as well. So we're in the middle of becoming a CIO, which is a charitable incorporated organisation. So we've been limited by guarantee for a while, but in order to be able to get corporate sponsorship and sort of public donations, which a lot of people have incredibly offered us, but because of the kind of um, model that we're in at the moment, we can't accept them. So we're just making sure that we are a charitable incorporated organisation so that we can do the business side, but we can also take donations as well and hopefully scale further. That's really cool. I was actually going to ask you like what your view or future is for Lumu, but you basically hit it there as well in terms of trying to branch out and take that same learning model essentially to um, back home, I would call it the motherland, back to East mm-hmm. Africa and stuff. Um, but like, can, can you, uh, I think I saw in your feed the other day from Lumu about the partnership, for example, with JP Morgan that you've recently just announced. Um, and obviously we worked together on the PwC one, which was I think six or seven months ago. Um, what's the view? Is it gonna be again, just trying to get these sort of partnerships with um, companies to give a window into what the opportunities are to people and maybe try to change the way they're thinking about a career path? Is that kind of just making it a bit more accessible? Yeah, so I think with the corporations, for me, I think reverse mentoring is a big deal. There's a lot that we can learn from young people. I think we often feel like, yeah, I've been there, I've done it, so I have all the knowledge. No, young people have different experiences and different insights to us, and we can learn a lot from them. So with the mentoring, a lot of corporations reached out, not just corporations, but individuals as well, reached out last summer as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement, because I guess they felt like they wanted to show that they were supportive of the black community and they wanted to do that by supporting black youth. So either through mentoring or doing workshops like you did or now like JP Morgan, they're doing a combination of both as well as interview training for young people. So for them as part of their, with JP Morgan, they're doing it through their kind of philanthropy department. Um, Some are doing it through their CSR, some are just doing it on an individual level and then they have different colleagues who they can kind of bring into it either through 
signing up for a newsletter or doing it directly through us. But yeah, the idea on their end, I think it's showing support and allyship for the Black community. But for me, it's you can learn from these young mentees as much as, not as much as, but as much as you're going to be teaching them through mentoring, they can teach you because they've taught me a lot. Like I thought I knew all the problems because I've explained my background. So I've been through um, disadvantage, but they've taught me so much. Like I, I thought I knew it all, but I definitely don't. So in terms of building strategies that are going to be more inclusive in the future, because, you know, every company is now doing their DNI strategies. I think of course. it's important for them to get those sort of perspectives in because these are the leaders of our future. So they're getting that kind of insight. And if they choose to, they can build those insights into the strategies that they put in place going forward to make sure that they are the companies that our future leaders will be able to thrive within. I think other than that, like you said, it's, again, representation. I remember we have a speaker who said that he had one architect come in to one of these assemblies at school, and now he owns his own private architecture firm in London, which is a big deal. He's 29, was well, probably 30 now, but at the time he was 29. So to have been able to achieve that just because of one assembly, those are sort of outcomes I want because you have, we have no idea how much impact we have just by somebody knowing that we exist, just by a young person knowing what a job title is before we even had the conversation. That could be what sparks the change in their trajectory. So that exposure, that representation, just learning what a career field is. So I said that financial inclusion was like when I found out about it, I fell in love with it. But I found out about it at 21, 22. Before that, I had no idea. Anything to do with numbers, I didn't want to hear it. Finance, accounting, maths, didn't want to hear it. But now it's, it's crazy how that <laughs> happened like uh, if you think about finance your your mind automatically is to finance and accounting accounting finance uh whereas <laughs> you're now showing another door as to where you can use the that social impact that it has yeah amazing awesome well thank you so much and i think it's been a really interesting journey as to what you've achieved so far um i will be definitely touching base in the next six or 12 months or whatever to understand how Alimu is, you know, progressed. Um, and I know you've got like a hard stop as well. So I just wanted to get, at least give you some time back before the next one. Um, but yeah, it would be pretty cool to see how this evolves. And obviously during the future, we can probably collaborate on a few other things. Um, wherever you need my help and just, you know, just let me know. I'm more than happy to help out uh, and take it forward. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be sharing all the links. I'll be obviously messaging afterwards to give get all the links and details. Uh, I'll be popping that in this podcast description below for everyone to go check out, uh, interact, and maybe ask for any more questions that you have. Um, but other than that, I think, you know, thank you so much again for your time and I uh, wish you all the best. Me. No worries at all. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thanks.